Let's open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to try to get through this text today. I cut out a lot. Uh, there's a lot to cover. We're going to focus on Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. But for context purposes, we're going to start on verse 16. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Let's pray. Father, uh, please allow your word to touch every ear in this congregation today. Let it be uplifting for the congregation. Amen. Romans 1. Paul has written this letter to believers in Rome. They are faithful. He's heard about their faith in other areas. They're well known for their faith. They're mature believers. Unlike, for example, the believers in Corinth who were immature believers. In Corinth, Paul writes to a group of people who need instruction on how to do things right. In Rome, these believers know good doctrine. They're like beacon of hope. But they still need encouragement to keep doing the right thing. So this was written to a mature group of believers. And the outline of the book goes something like this. When verse 16 and 17 is the theme of the whole book. Verse 18, or chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, covers the condemnation of man without Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 3 through chapter 5, it covers justification. And then chapter 6 through 8, sanctification. And then restoration and application. And in this section today, in chapter 1, verse 18, we're going to cover condemnation. Condemnation specifically from God. Condemnation from God. That's right, from God. The wrath. The wrath. Of God. Well, in verse 18, he starts with Paul, the author, starts with for. For the wrath. Why does he say for? It's adding on to what was previously said about the righteousness of God, that the righteous man shall live by faith. And now he's giving a reason of why you need faith in Jesus Christ to live. It is because the wrath of God is on those who do not have faith. The gospel is the only means for salvation. In chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But here he says, the wrath of God. The good news as opposed to the bad news. The wrath. What is the wrath of God? This word comes from a Greek word that means whole, uh, God's judgment, his passion, his opposition to sin. And then it explains how God acts out that passion, that judgment to sin in a controlled, precise, perfect punishment. It's not a wrath that's out of control or that's a spur of the moment anger that we have as humans, but it is a perfectly metered punishment 
God doesn't change. His mood is not uh, like ours where we get angered easily and we strike out against someone. God's wrath is measured. You know what's coming. It's guaranteed. Why does God have wrath? Because he requires holiness, perfection. He requires holiness and perfection. In Exodus 20, verse 1 through 7, it says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven or above on the earth or beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. To those who keep my commandments. And then in First Peter, Peter says, Therefore, in uh, chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior. Be holy also in your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. God requires holiness. And then Paul says later in Romans chapter 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Therefore, down in verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your bodies to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Once again, God requires holiness, perfection. That's why God has wrath on those who are not believers. Because we cannot be holy on our own. We have to have faith in the only holy one, Jesus Christ. Here's what Jesus says about wrath in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He goes on to say, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says you fools shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make, every, to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one of you, you make him twice as much a son of. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of. That's not my words. That's the words of Jesus Christ. 
And here's what else Jesus has to say in the same sermon. The same sermon on the mount in Matthew 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the, broad, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Few. And later on he says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform any miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. God requires holiness, purity. He says the wrath, the wrath of God, his anger, his punishment, his measured out punishment is revealed. How is it revealed? Well, that word revealed is the same word that we see in the book title, Revelation, the apocalypse. It's the same word. The wrath of God has been revealed. It's something that's been covered up that is now revealed to us. It's revealed in two ways. Now in the present time and in the future in a cataclysmic way. But in this context, he's specifically talking about the present time. But we can't talk about the present wrath without talking about the future cataclysmic wrath. So now, constantly, continuously, in what ways is this wrath revealed? Well, we can think about the physical consequences of God's wrath, of our sin, which brings his wrath. For example, think of a drunk or someone who's partied. Like in my day, I did a lot of partying. And the next day I have a headache. Think of the headache a person gets the next day after drinking alcohol. That's a form of God's wrath. It's pain from making a bad decision. Or how about kidney failure for an alcoholic? How about the effects of drugs on the face and the teeth of someone who does drugs? How about the cancer that's caused from a smoker? Or how about a prostitute and a John's physical disease from having illicit sex? Or how about all sorts of other illnesses that we see in society today? One in particular example we can see in the Bible is with childbirth. In Genesis 3.16 we see uh, the punishment for the sin of Eve is, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. In pain, I will greatly multiply your childbirth, your pain in childbirth. This is a consequence of sin. This is how God reveals his wrath in the present time. All women who have birthed a child know the pain of childbirth. It's unmistakable, right? And then we see later on in Romans chapter 1, going down to verse 22, look down there. Paul gives an example right away of this wrath, starting in verse 22. It's a progressive, ongoing God relinquishing his, his sovereignty, or not his sovereignty, his, his control over the person's life and letting them deal with the sin that they already have. In verse 22, it says, Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And what's the result of that? Therefore, God gave them over. And then it says in verse 25, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And what's the result of that? For this reason, God gave them over. You see, God relinquishes his interaction with man, and he leaves us to our own sin. That's another form of wrath that we face today. Another form of wrath is death. Death. 
In Genesis chapter 2, 16 through 17, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. He's talking about a spiritual death, an instant spiritual death, separation from God, that also leads to an eventual physical death. This is the wrath of God today. Everyone must die. In Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 8, we talk about how death reigned from Adam to Moses. It says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Died. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This is serious language. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered through the world, in the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, Death reigned from Adam until Moses, even though those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Death was the punishment for sin. Death is the wrath of God that he put on his own son. Death. Romans 6, 22 through 23 says, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the wrath of God. Listen at what uh, happened with Jesus Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 22 really quick. And listen at this. So Christ, in anticipation of the wrath that he was going to face from God the Father. Chapter 22, down in verse 42. Luke 22, starting at verse 42. It says here, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. I'm sorry, here, let's see here. Yep. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. This is what Jesus faced in anticipation for the upcoming wrath of God being on him for every single sinner in the world. Past present and future, the wrath of God. The Father abandoned Christ spiritually, which is also a form of wrath. This is why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew he was going to face the wrath of God, both spiritually and physically. What is another form of wrath that we see? We just talked about death. How about creation? Creation. Well, we can see in Romans chapter 8. Let's go there. Romans chapter 8. And Paul spells this out here. Chapter 8, starting in verse 19. We know that when God created the heavens and the earth, it was good. Absolutely. Romans 8:19 For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself 
also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The wrath of God can be seen even in creation. Listen at what God said to Noah. Behold, in Genesis 6, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven everything that is now on the earth shall perish God used water to destroy the earth and then here's what God said to Moses in Exodus 9 now the Lord said to Moses stretch out your hand toward the sky that hail may fall on all the land of Egypt on man and on beast and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very severe. Such has not been uh, in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, was there no hail. You see, God used natural forces in his wrath. Natural forces in his wrath. In nature. Think about Pharaoh with the plague of frogs, the plague of insects, the plague of locusts, the plague of boils, the plague of hail to Pharaoh for not letting his people go. We can see the wrath of God today in all these ways. We also can see the wrath of God in the cataclysmic future, the apocalypse of Christ, the revealing of Christ. And the sixth seal, during the tribulation, the seven years of struggle that all those who are here will face, not here today, because we believe in a rapture that takes place before the tribulation, but those who will be during that time. Here's what it says in Revelation 6.12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains." And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And then we think about the battle of Armageddon when Christ comes with his army. And then it says, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds of which fly in mid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And then lastly, we hear in verse 21 of Revelation 19, And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. The wrath of God in the cataclysmic future. And then Christ's last judgment after the millennium, but before the final heaven and earth. Revelation 20, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were open, and another book was open, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up 
the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The wrath of God is from is revealed from heaven. This is God's sovereignty, his dwelling place, his place of power. And then it says, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It sounds like a riddle, but it's very straightforward. The wrath is revealed against certain men who, who commit certain sins. And these two sins are separated into ungodliness and unrighteousness. And I'll flush that out here. When you think about the Ten Commandments, you have two parts. The first half of the Ten Commandments were toward God, sins against God. The second half were sins against man. And Jesus summarized these in this way. He says in Matthew 22, verse 35, when a man asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. This is ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness is not obeying the first and great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. By not giving God the adequate worship that he deserves. Paul spells this out also in Romans in chapter 12. Verse 1, he says, I therefore urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So ungodliness is the opposite of that. Not giving yourself as a living sacrifice. Not giving God the worship that he deserves. Not proving what the will of God is in your own life. Well, there's three examples that I want to share with us today at Beacon of ungodliness in the present age. Ungodliness in the present age. Number one, worshiping idols worshiping idols. Well, Paul spells this out in Romans 1, verse 21. It says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's ungodliness. They are not worshiping the Lord God. Other examples we may think about in our own personal lives is we may worship our own home. We may put a lot of emphasis on our own home, our own neighborhood. Hey, I live in this neighborhood. Which one do you live in? How about certain foods? I can't believe you eat that kind of food. You're not healthy. How about school preferences? Homeschooled over public school. Public school over homeschool. This can become an idol. If we put this before our worship of God and our love for our brothers and sisters, this can become an idol. How about the worship of knowledge? That's the second thing, the worship of knowledge. Especially of the scripture. That's right, the worship of of knowledge, especially of the scripture. We can make that an idol. We can turn our worship of God into an idol by focusing on the scripture itself rather than the God who wrote the scripture. I've met many people during my life as a pastor's kid who can quote whole sections of the Bible and their life does not back it up. They want to know the Bible so that they can prove to you that they know the Bible. We can worship the scripture rather than the God who wrote the scripture. That's wrong. How about politicians? 
Ouch. If you don't vote for A, you, man, don't even come talk to me. (laughs) We can worship politicians. Guess what? They're some of the most evil people on the face of the planet. And when we're worshiping politicians, we don't recognize that God is sovereign. God can work through the most evil politician more than the one you think might be good. I'm not talking about voting here. You got to vote for what's right. Right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about worshiping politicians. Wearing your favorite t-shirt of the politician on your shirt. I voted for, boom. Be careful. Because remember, when Daniel went to Babylon... Who was in charge? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was doing the will of God. But think about Ahab, who was a a leader of Israel. He was not doing the will of God. He's the one who was with Jezebel. But you would think he was the spiritual leader. So don't worship politicians. Remember that God is sovereign, not the politician. God can do anything in any country. I have the opportunity for the class that I'm in to be with lots of students from other countries on Zoom, from Africa, South America, Australia, all over the place. And I can tell you, there's Christians everywhere. We're not the only ones that are Christians. Don't worship politicians. That's ungodliness by not giving God the respect that is due. Unrighteousness. What is unrighteousness? It's the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbors yourself. So having the wrong actions, the wrong fruit that results from ungodliness. So a person who doesn't have reverence and fear of God will not be righteous. They will not treat their brother and sister right. This person has a lack in obedience to God's law. They have the wrong conduct. They express their wickedness because they're ungodly in the first place. This is why that verse says, only the good tree can produce good fruit. If you're ungodly, you will be unrighteous. All men, before they're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, are unrighteous because they're void of good deeds. Man is utterly bankrupt, lacking of goodness. We need something outside of ourselves to have righteousness. And that's why in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, Paul talks about the gospel. That's the righteousness we need to be saved. Because if we don't have that salvation, we will face the wrath of God. We will. There is no purgatory. There is no, I can make this up later. Well, here's some examples of unrighteousness in the present age. Backbiting, backstabbing, which is basically gossip and slander. Complaining about others as if our deeds are better. Isaiah 64, 6 says, for all of us, say that with me, all of us, me too, have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Now, obviously, this is for Israel in the Old Testament. It's the same for us today, though. Without Christ, we're that. Romans chapter 2, Paul spells that out too. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, passes judgment. For in that you judge one another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath 
and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. You see, there's a balance here. There's wrath and there's righteousness. But you can't obtain righteousness on your own. And then in Romans chapter 3, Paul says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No flesh. And further on in verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. We're all in the same boat. (laughs) I don't care how much you know, where you live, what neighborhood you're in, what kind of house you have, what politician you voted for, we're all in the same boat and only God is sovereign. Well, here's another example of unrighteousness in the present age. Dissension. Separation of different groups. I belong to this group. You belong to that one. Look what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.16. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. There are examples of this. And then Galatians 5. We know the fruits of the Spirit and the fruits of the flesh. So Paul warns Galatians about these fruits of the flesh. What's interesting He mentions many different fruits of the flesh that are examples of unrighteousness. Dissensions, factions, enmities, and strife. Well, dissensions are disagreements. Factions are cliques and conflicts within an organization. Enmities are hatred and hostility, and strife are disputes. That's all unrighteousness. Paul warned the Galatians that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's another form of wrath. Because if you don't inherit the kingdom of God, where are you going? Well, these are people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Get ready for what I'm about to say. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What month is this? Supposedly. Pride month. I deny that. It's June. Pride month, the celebration of Pride month is the suppression of the truth. We have a month for a sin. Just think about that for a minute. We have a month for a sin. Ready for this? Imagine you had rape month. Murder month. Wow. This should be disturbing to us. This is suppression of the truth at its greatest. Our government has called it a month. What does suppression mean? It means to hold something back, to to restrain it, to possess it, to hold something that is trying to get going in a different direction than you're trying to make it go. Some people say it's like pushing a ball down. I think about trying to hold back a freight train that's going full speed this way. It's worthless. Because God's truth is there. I don't care how bad you try to suppress the truth, it's there. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Truth even that has been revealed in natural revelation. To every single human being. That's right. Even the little tribe in the middle of the bushes, somewhere way on the other side of the sea. Ask Pastor Steve. He'll tell you. Their unrighteous deeds are no different than ours. Everyone has the ability to have light from God. Everyone. God has shed some light in their life in natural revelation. And they're without excuse. He gives you the ability to respond. And if you respond to that little bit of light that God has given, even that tribe in the middle of nowhere, God will give you more revelation of himself. 
They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is the unrighteousness they already have, which leads to their suppression of truth. Well, people also uh, suppress the truth in God's actual special revelation of salvation. Look at what Hebrews 10.26 says. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Then verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. That which is known. And that which is known is his invisible attributes, which are his internal power and divine nature. We see God is invisible. John 4, 24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He's invisible. Well, what is he talking about? God made it evident to them. Well, verse 20 starts to explain that. It says, For since the creation of the world, the six days of creation that God did, since those six days of creation, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. Now, through the intellect, through the reason, all men have the ability to understand to understand what God, who God is through what has been made. His eternal power, his divine nature, which speaks of his holiness, his righteousness. He's the creator of beauty because he originated the beauty in creation. He made creation and it was good. What has been made? When it says what has been made, whatever has been made speaks automatically to the power and divine nature of God. Because it cannot make itself. So it had to have a maker outside of itself that's more intelligent and more powerful than itself. So the earth had to have a creator. Listen at this. Listen at what NASA says about um, the process of natural revelation, the revealing of God in nature. Now, you might think, NASA's going to talk about God? Well, they are in a way that they don't even realize they're doing. Listen at this. NASA says this. The universe is everything. (laughs) just that statement alone NASA says the universe is everything it includes all of space and all the matter and energy that space contains it even includes time itself now just think about that that goes against evolution because NASA says that space includes time it includes you earth and the moon are part of the universe as are the other planets, and there are many dozens of moons. Along with asteroids and comets, the planets orbit the sun. The sun is one among hundreds of billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And most of those stars have their own planets known as exoplanets. The Milky Way is but one of billions of galaxies in the observable universe. All of them, including our own, are thought to have supermassive black holes in their centers. All the stars and all the galaxies and all the other stuff that astronomers can't even observe (laughs) are all part of the universe. It's simply everything. Thank you, NASA. We know that as Christians, don't we? Well, listen at what, uh, what we know about bees when you think about the creation of the earth. Bees make excellent pollinators because most of their life is spent collecting pollen, a source of protein that they feed to their developing offspring. When a bee lands on a flower, the hairs all over the bee's body attract pollen grains through uh, electrostatic forces. Stiff hairs on their legs enable them to groom the pollen into specialized bushes or pockets on their legs or body. And then they carry it back to their nest. Individual bees tend to focus on one kind of flower at a time, which means it is more likely that pollen from one flower be transferred to another flower of the same species by a particular bee. Wow. (laughs) Just think about that for a minute. Many plants require this kind of pollen distribution that come from bees, not from factories, not from anything that we made or did, from bees. 
known as cross-pollination, in order to produce viable seeds. The business of collecting pollen requires a lot of energy, and so many flowers attract and also reward bees with nectar, a mixture of water and sugars produced by plants. All that outside of man. God did that. How can you see a bee and realize what it's doing and not think about God? And then lastly, I want to talk about the hibernation of bears. In the... <laughs> I like science. In the autumn, Yellowstone bears enter a period of excessive eating called uh, hyperphagia, a sort of, uh, uh, sort of like humans at Thanksgiving. <laughs> but lasting several weeks. Just think about that. During this fall feeding frenzy, grizzlies can eat up to 20,000 calories and put on up to three pounds of weight each day. Bears need to put on a lot of weight fast as they'll survive entirely off of their fat stores during hibernation. During the summer mating season, fertilizing eggs will remain in a female bear's womb but will not implant until weeks or months later. This helps mama bear to conserve energy until hibernation and may be a way to control the population if food is scarce. If she has not accumulated enough fat by the time she settles into her den, the egg will spontaneously abort. Yellowstone bears typically dig their uh, dens on slopes at high elevation. The den entrance is just large enough for the bear to squeeze through so it will cover quickly with insulating snow. The chamber is dug only slightly larger than the bear's body to allow for maximum heat retention. Wow, how can there not be a God? Rapidly gaining weight and then lying still for several months is not generally considered a recipe for fitness. Yet most bears (laughs) remain healthy during hibernation. Biologists are studying hibernation in the hopes of preventing osteoporosis and type 2 diabetes. Wow, that's amazing. And then I had one for cheetahs, but I won't read that one. So they're without excuse. How can you read that and not think, man, what made all these things? This is too detailed to be evolution. So men, as they reject the light that God has revealed to them in nature, are without excuse. They're just absolutely without excuse. This is the status of man in John 3, 19. It says here, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. You see, we're evil. We don't want to come to the light. Um, So we we see that God is revealed to men by reason and conscience. Romans 2, 14, uh, it says here, For when the Gentiles, these are non-Jews, they were non-believers, who do not have the law instinctively, uh, they do the things instinctively of the law. Instinctively, not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts um, alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So even the Gentiles have the law. They know the law instinctively. They do the things of the law. You see, man was made to know right and wrong. God gave man that opportunity. Listen at what God said to Adam in the garden in Genesis 3. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. This is what Adam said. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. He knew he was wrong. He knew he went against God's law. Well, I can't talk about all this death and wrath and destruction without talking about, guess what? The benefits of wrath. There is a benefit to wrath. Well, number one, it preserves order and peace in society by suppressing sin. God's wrath suppresses sin. Number two, it leads to the conversion of some sinners. Think of Paul. He faced God's wrath on the road to Damascus. God took his eyesight. It leads to the conversion of sinners. But the number one reason that wrath is good is because his wrath on his son saved us. His wrath on his son saved us. You see, in Romans chapter 3, 24, it says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a payment, in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. 
Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means there's no wrath. Why? Because Christ faced the wrath that you were supposed to face. For those who are in Christ Jesus, if you have faith in Christ, you will not face the wrath because Christ did it for you. So there's a benefit to wrath. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is beautiful. Christ took the wrath that we were supposed to take. And lastly, John 3.36, he who believes in the Son, the one who faced the wrath for us, has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You see, wrath on the Son was a blessing to us. He faced the agony that we should have faced for our own sins. We can never live up to what we've done in our sins. Each and every one of us will face the wrath of God. It's inevitable. Let's turn to Romans 5 and we'll finish. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. So we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. That means we no longer have the wrath. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have peace with God. There is no wrath for you. So, I hope you're encouraged by the sermon on wrath. And uh, it was for a good reason. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we're thankful that Jesus Christ took the wrath on the cross that we were supposed to take. What a blessing that is, Lord. Uh, we, we can't fathom what it would have been to take all the sins of the whole world and not be guilty for those same sins. You've blessed us, Lord, with your son, Jesus Christ, right now even with the gift of the Holy Spirit that allows us to do uh, deeds prepared beforehand. It allows us to do the right thing, Lord. So we're thankful for that, the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're also thankful for the uh, eternal life that we will have in the future. And Lord, uh, we just pray that here at Beacon of Hope, um, we can remember the wrath, but above all, we remember the righteousness that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.